The Ascent of Board Games is a podcast in which we discuss the history and evolution of board game mechanics, concepts, and themes from the dawn of history to today's newest releases. We talk, we laugh, we pick on each other, and we occasionally get things wrong. But we hope to provide both entertainment and education to today's discerning podcast listener, you. Welcome, everybody, to episode 12 of The Ascent of Board Games. This month, we are going to be talking about what we were originally going to call social deduction games, but there has been some discussion going back and forth as we prepare to record this episode. No blood was shed. Yet. A little bit. And I think what we elected to call these were hidden team games. Basically, it's the sort of thing where there are multiple different teams or groups involved in the play of the game, and you don't know who your teammates are, and one of the fundamental things you have to do in order to win the game is figure out who your friends are and who your enemies are. Mike, I think you had some more specific verbiage on this you wanted to add in. You're our house rules lawyer, so. I think you did a pretty good job. We're not saying that these aren't social deduction games, but we are specifically removing games whose primary mechanic is to bluff to your opponents. We're also going to be removing hidden trader games specifically. However, there will be some conversation on that because team traders are a thing and like... Yeah, as you've probably figured out if you listen to any of these episodes so far, there aren't a lot of hard and fast rules as far as what goes in there. We just kind of go with what feels like it's in the right episode and there are definitely some corner cases we're going to be talking about. We've definitely got like a a three-way Venn diagram going on here and (laughs) we're going to try and cover one of those circles. So unless Frank has anything in his books of 1920 party games that we need to talk about. Frank, can you describe these books for our listener? First of all, they're physical books. Yes, on paper. (laughs) One-use Kindles. (laughs) Totally. But infinite battery. They're actually two of my favorite books. They're called What Do We Do Now? What Do We Do Next? The first one's from 1928, published by a bunch of New York journalists, and they describe the games being played at parties in the New York socialite scene. The title of that sounds like a crisis prevention. What do we do now? (laughs) Sounds really dire. (laughs) So now I'm curious, is the other one from like 1930 or so? Yes, same author. It's like from 1920... 1930, yes. Okay, cool, because that way the first one are while people are having their caviar and champagne, and then the 1930 (laughs) is moving pennies and apple cores around on a slot of cardboard because everyone's broke. They're also name-dropping. I mean, Harpo Marx, Rube Goldberg. We were having dinner with the Goldbergs the other night, and they dragged out this lovely game. Yeah, That's amazing. What's really weird, though, is that lovely game was just Mousetrap by Milton Bradley. (laughs) (laughs) And yeah, you can see the origins of some games in there, especially old party games with older rules. The Tibetan Memory Trick if that means anything to anyone is in here which is not never mind no now now you have to I'll explain ask it frank what is the tibetan memory trick it's an old dr demento thing which was one hen two ducks three squawking geese four limerick oysters five corpulent porpoises six whatever until you get to sympathetic apathetic diabetic old men on roller skates with a marked propensity toward procrastination and sloth and it was an old broadcaster like recitation that they used to warm up fascinating But oddly enough, for the history of this, I would look closely at the Wikipedia page for Wink Murder. Uh, You see a set of games, and it's almost like a little history of the early social deduction games. 
It starts with Wink Murder, which Wikipedia describes as killer, murder in the dark, lonely ghost, and killer killer. I think Poison Dart was Mike's flavor of this yeah, game. This game actually, present day, I think is used a lot during camps. So I played this game when I went to summer camp as a kid, and I've recently taught it to some children that I work with. And it's less focus on blood murder death assassin and more on like hey you're a killer dart frog and you've got to stick your tongue out at somebody without getting caught and that person gets poisoned and dies oh no so still murder just I mean, with still frogs murder, but, but it's more adorable frogs. so it's adorable <laughs> right right but basically the person murdered has to like count silently to five and then drop dead mm-hmm. and the object's to catch who the murderer is by seeing them wink at someone else right or stick their tongue out or whatever the, yeah, exactly. the rules are or call out jacques iq's in which case everyone stops. It has to be seconded or something like that. As you read this description, the rules gradually get from the very simple, oh, he did it and I saw him, to you need a second to actually accuse someone and start thinking about werewolf here and you can kind of see the progression. The final version on this Wikipedia page is really interesting. They call it the slit throat variation. Players walk around a building in the dark, wandering the halls and rooms. You give out identities with ace of spades as a murderer, kings are detective. And the other cards are all townspeople, the town mob. Uh, Sounds familiar. The murderer kills someone by slitting their throat. They basically wink at them and then tells them where to go and lie down to die. When someone finds a body, they flip on the lights and call murder in the dark. But then the detectives gather everyone together in a town meeting at the end of each round, which is timed. And the detectives can choose to try to accuse a murderer. One of the detectives can. Basically, if it's right, Yay, the detectives are survive and win or whatever. If he's wrong, the townspeople form a mob and kill him. <laughs> Sounds appropriate. That's just like how justice works here now, right? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> so I really like the mental image of this being played at the Great Gatsby parties <laughs> and like a yeah. bunch of folks in these like tuxedos and fine dresses are just going around like pretending to murder each other and you know there are a couple people who are getting really way too into it Uh you know the hyperventilating and (laughs) yeah there are a whole bunch of murder games in the books it was a popular pastime in the 1920s so that i think is a good segue into our first game on our list which was the werewolf are you a werewolf werewolves of miller's hollow mafia mafia Mafia. was was i think actually the first it was correct We came up with a date in 1986, 1987 for Mafia, 1997 for Werewolf. To be clear, that's the first version that Board Game Geek lists, the first sort of published box version, but people have definitely been playing these games longer than that. Right, and Board Game Geek, I think, gave credit to Dimitri Davidoff for Mafia and Andrew Plotkin for Werewolf. If you've been to any kind of game convention or gathering, you've almost certainly seen a largest group of people sitting around a table in a circle on a floor, drumming quietly on the table, <laughs> which we shouldn't do during the podcast because it makes Why things not? difficult for the microphones. The basics of this game, though, is that the group of people is split into two teams of disproportionate size. The werewolf or the gangsters will have fewer in number than the innocents or the villagers. Each round of the game is played in two phases. There is a night phase in which a murder occurs, and then a day phase in which accusations are blindly thrown around at the top of people's voices to figure out who to blame and thusly lynch for these murders. As the game has evolved, there have been more and more additional roles and things added. It's a game that you have a moderator. 
everybody close your eyes. All right, werewolves, open your eyes, look at each other, recognize each other, close your eyes. You know, then they'll add additional people like the seer who can point at someone and find out if they're a werewolf. There's umpteen different variations of it. I have a Templar variation somewhere in this house. I've got a Cthulhu variation. I have one of those as well. Yeah, there's a lot of flavors. And in fact, most of this episode is going to be talking about games that are in some way descended from the whole werewolf mafia family tree. I think the first time that I've saw the, like, character role variants though in this game was with the werewolves of miller's hollow which i think is still one of my favorite versions of this just because they really took that basic design and added some pretty art to it and i'm a sucker for some pretty art published originally as Le Lugaru de Thersiliu. Yeah, this one, I don't know. Obviously, it's tremendously popular. It's gone through a zillion printings and there are tons and tons of people playing it. For me, I'm not as big a fan because there's really not anything in the way of deduction. It's mostly kind of just people yelling at each other, which is fine, I guess. I actually think that's true for almost all of these social deduction games. The ones I tend to like better, there are ways to get information and make more informed decisions. Yeah, but you're still ultimately making a Kierkegaardian leap of faith. Sure. Brian, me too. Yeah, I'll, I'll join in on this. Uh, I, I actually hate this game. <laughs> I cannot stand it. And it's maybe just my personal preferences for types of games, but I don't like games where, as you said, people argue in the day phase, uh, you know, are accusing people of being a werewolf. And when your best defense is, nuh-uh, it's yeah. not an interesting <laughs> game to me. I'm sorry. I cannot stand this game. Nuh-uh. I've tried it. Yeah. Thanks, Joe. <laughs> I've tried it many times, and it's... It's one of those games that gets suggested a lot because it can play an enormous amount of people. It's very easy to teach to people, and a lot of people really enjoy it. I'm not one of them, but this game almost has a cult-like following. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's conventions that are literally devoted to this single game and the variants thereof. Yeah, I mean, at at Dragon Con, there's a werewolf room that is going pretty much Mm -hmm. the entire four-day weekend. Yeah, yeah. there's one in uh, Georgia called Decepticon, which drives me crazy because I'm like, that's a Transformers word. You can't have it. It's extremely popular, and like it's interesting because a lot of the people that I know that really like it have very similar personality types. Like mm-hmm. there seems this seems to be attractive to a very specific a personality type. Yeah, people who are outgoing and like to talk a lot and argue—that's what this game is all about. If you're a debater, this is probably right yeah, up your people alley. People that like to get into arguments love this game. That's like one of their primary things they enjoy See, that's why doing. I like games that have rules so we can just look at them and solve the argument so we don't have to yell at each You're other. You're wrong because it says this right here. I think at its core, this game was originally supposed to be like during the night phase when everybody's eyes are closed and these murders are happening, like the players are listening to see if they hear somebody move so that they have something to base these accusations on. But most recent iterations of this game have caused, like, people all have to make noise during the night, which makes it difficult. And it it does devolve kind of into, well, I think it was you because I don't want it to be me. Yeah. And, like, that is a thing that I also currently hate in games. But my secret shame here, guys, I went through a whole phase of this game. And this is a game for non-gamers. Oh, yeah. That said, if you play with a group that you know fairly well and have played Werewolf a lot with the entire group, I mean, a lot of it's just bluffing and being able to study, oh, yeah, he's lying, and knowing that level. I once, in a Werewolf game, and I used to play it extensively as well, but with a same group, got away with, I'm a werewolf, kill me. And you were, and they didn't? Yes. <laughs> Fascinating. And so now a lot of people just look at me and go, I don't know what Frank's doing. I'm so mm-hmm. confused. Don't they say that most of the time, regardless of what game you're playing? Pretty much. <laughs> if you play this with the same group, there is a metagame that develops. 
Exactly. Uh, I don't feel fond enough of it to play it enough to get a metagame, but that's just me. I will say there is a bit of BYOF, bring your own fun to this game, where like there is something to be said about doing the whole thing in character. So like everybody is really acting up being like scared villagers who are being picked off one at a time in the night. And just like that can be a lot of fun. And future iterations of this game that we will talk about I think bring out the best parts of this game without having it overstay their welcome. I mean, we had another case where one villager said, no, I woke up this morning bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. He lasted about three (laughs) seconds after that. (laughs) The next one we had on our list is definitely more of a game game. It's called Incognito. It was originally released in 1988, re-released in a card game version in 1997. Past Brian was a bad person and neglected to mention that it was designed by Leo Colavini and Alex Randolph and originally published by Milton Bradley. It is a strictly four-player game set during the Carnival in Venice. And basically there are two teams of spies who are, of course, wearing masks because Venice Carnival. And what you need to do is identify who your teammate is and then work with them to get the secret plans or whatever they are. Yeah, they have a separate mission they have to accomplish together. And it's definitely one of the first, if not the first, examples of these sort of board games with that sort of figure out who your partner is. If I remember correctly, in the original game, wasn't it that one player's signal was to wink and another one, like, scratched their chin or there was still, like... Specific physical actions you had to do? There are physical actions you can, aside from the card passing, Mm -hmm. which for asking questions, which is a little more strongly deduction. Right. What makes this more social is that you can use specific signals to indicate to your partner when you figure them out or just make signals or make somebody else's signals or whatever. And there's very specific eye wink, tugging your ear or whatever. Both of the authors, Leo Colavini and Alex Randolph, are Italian. And there's an interesting game called Briscola, which is a trick-taking game for partners. And Briscola allows cheating, (laughs) specifically by using little facial tics and winks to signal to your partner. And part of the game is about catching your opponents and realizing, oh, he has that. Okay. (laughs) I did not know that. Basically, some of the signals are very like Briscola. And that's what makes the game charming. Aside from the production, which is gloriously Carnival Venice. Yeah, I mean, the art's great. Well, and then the figurines, right? You have four figures. You have the tall, the short, the fat, and the skinny, I think. The Jason, four it's figures. not okay to stereotype people like that. <laughs> that is officially in the rules. Thank you very much. <laughs> but the little pawns are great. And the, um, what's it called? Phantom of Prophecy that allows you to know which things are allowed to move is an amazing little, like, figurine of a carnival mask with three spots for colored... Yeah, and then colored balls. Yeah, to tell you which you can move. I was genuinely surprised at how good the production value was on this one. Milton Bradley, yeah. It's been a minute since we've played this game, but I really enjoyed it. Talking about it, I kind of want to go back and revisit it a little bit. I've got a new edition. Aries put out a new edition. I'm curious to see if they tweak the rules any. The new edition has a fifth player option where someone can play as the ambassador. Oh, cool. Yeah, the ambassador to figure out who everyone else is. Exactly. They don't have to do anything. They just have to know who's who. I have to say this because I love the names. So the teams (laughs) are always the same people. It's Lord Fiddlebottom and Colonel Bubble versus Agent X and Madam Zaza. (laughs) <laughs> yes. Oh, I have not actually played this. We played the 1997 card version of this game. Which is, eh, the board game's better. I remember enjoying the card game version. Okay. Well, then you should definitely play the board game version. The Ares version looks really pretty. Like, the pieces are really nice. Yeah, the pawns are awesome. I was really impressed. So the Italian hits keep on coming. We have Bang, released in 2002. 
published by... D.V. Giochi. D.V. Giochi, yes, exactly. Exactly what Frank said. Designed by Emilio Sicara? I love that we give Joe Chira- these names. Chira? Emiliano Sciara. Emiliano Sciara. I did it. I said beautiful. it that with was my beautiful. mouth. It was beautiful. You said it with conviction I and intensity. It. We totally it. believe it. Beautiful. Future Brian, good luck editing. Yeah. <laughs> these are always entertaining. So, in Bang, you're in a Wild West town. One person is the sheriff. One person is the deputy who wants to help the sheriff. And then you have some renegades and some outlaws. I think you have a couple of deputies? Uh, Possibly two deputies if there's many players. I think only ever one renegade. And functionally, the way the game works is someone gets a dynamite, and then they're the renegade, and you shoot them. (laughs) And then the game is over. So, obviously, the sheriff and his deputies want to stop all the outlaws. The outlaws want to kill the sheriff and his deputies. The renegade wants to kill everyone but himself. So he functions sometimes like an outlaw and sometimes like a deputy, depending on the situation. You can get various kinds of guns and you can get horses and you can modify your distance to other players, right? So like it's actually like physical seat distance to the other players to determine how far you can shoot, right? So like guns have different ranges. And if you have a horse, it like adds to your range because you can move faster and you can get like a barrel and to get cover. And I think initially you can only directly interact with the people on either your immediate left or right. That's correct. And as you get better equipment, you can suddenly be affecting people halfway across the table for you, which they may or may not be expecting. Sure. And also if you kill someone, then the person on the other side of them is now one away from you. You also have a role function, like a person who you are, Mm -hmm. which gives you like a secret ability. I remember Calamity Jane, she can like fire multiple times or something. Yeah, I, I don't think that's secret. I think actually you reveal I think it's who public. you yes, are, yes, but yes. not your you know role. Right. You, I think yeah. the sheriff starts the game revealed. He, does. he also gets a bonus for being the sheriff. He gets more health, I think. Because he's the immediate target. And basically, this is the first game, certainly the first big successful game, where you really had the sort of not just two teams, but kind of multiple different roles within the team and that sort of nebulous character like the Renegade. So you start off, well, you know who the sheriff is, and the sheriff's probably not going to start off shooting people because he doesn't know who anyone is. And then eventually one of the outlaws is going to be in a position to take a shot at the sheriff. And that's when the deductions are. So it's like, all right, if Mike is an outlaw and Frank shoots at Mike, then Frank is probably a deputy or he's the Renegade because the Renegade is like helping the sheriff until all the outlaws are dead. There's a whole sort of multi-level deduction process there that this really kicked off. You have to see what other people do to other people. And and you're hoping that when this person chose to attack that person, this person was acting on correct information because they might just have been wrong. Or you have certain players that just like shooting people for fun. And I think it is important to to make note here that just because you shot somebody doesn't mean they're out of the game. Right. You have multiple hit points you can take and you can drink booze to get health back because that's how alcohol works. This game, I think, holds up really well. I mean, it's still a solid, fun game when you get a group together. The problem I have with Bang, though, is it's too damn complicated. And a lot of the cards don't really explain all the rules. So that upfront rules explanation is kind of painful. And most social deduction games are really simple, easy to teach. Ideally. Since you've often got seven or eight players, three of whom are talking on the phone, one who's wandered up to get drinks, that gets hard. I really enjoy Bang. I think it is probably up there among my favorites. And I think this goes back to what you were saying, Brian, is that Ben gives you mechanics on which to make your accusations, whereas Werewolf was just blind accusations. Yeah. And like you, I also really enjoy having a way to mechanically 
suss out who's who. out who is who. Yeah, Bang is, I think, more of a game than Werewolf. Werewolf is kind of more of an activity. I mean, there are rules, but just barely. And the reason I hate Bang mm-hmm. is because I can play Shadowhunters instead. <laughs> Fair Much enough. better game. Fair enough. Yeah, this was released in 2005, published by Game Republic, designed by Yasutaka Ikeda. It's pretty Japanese. I mean, there's a whole anime theme. Everyone gets a character role. You're divided into three teams, shadows, neutrals, and hunters. Shadows want to kill hunters. Hunters want to kill shadows. Neutrals, eh, they have their own goal, including one who wants to die first. Everyone has secret hit points, and you start counting down the hit points. You sometimes find out what person's role is when they just fall over dead oh you only had eight hit points i guess you were this person yeah Yeah. you can reveal your identity to get a superpower and there are a whole bunch of items on a turn you can basically move to a location which is rolled semi-randomly that gives you a card you can pick item cards to make yourself more powerful or kind of deduction cards that can tell you about other people yeah the hermit cards yeah you do have that really hardcore oh i know something about you there are a couple things about this game i really like and one that i definitely don't you have a weapon when you're making dice you can normally attack people that are like adjacent to you or in the same local region as you. And then there are various weapon cards that you can get that will do more damage or increase your range or attack multiple people at once. And all of those stack. So you can get the sort of thing where I have a shotgun that shoots flaming magic chainsaws at people. Because I have all those things together and one attack gets all of those benefits. But don't forget that the studs on that chainsaw are actually pistols. That explode into more chainsaws. (laughs) It sounds like uh, Borderlands. Yeah. (laughs) The only problem I have with this game, and unfortunately it's kind of a big one, is the font and the printing. (laughs) It's in really small, really not easy to read print. It's like black on dark brown. It's an extremely difficult game to read. Bad Zev, what were you thinking? Exactly. If someone were to re-release this with a better... When I say graphic design, the art's perfect. Art's great, yeah. But the ability to read the cards could be so much better than it is, and then I think I would play this game more. And along those same lines, like, this game plays up to eight players, and that board is really obnoxiously small when you try to fit eight people around it. I mean, there's certainly enough space on the board for everything, because other than the player pawns, there's not much there. Right. But in terms of just being able to see and reach it. Right. That board is, I think, too small for the player count, but is the perfect size for component size. Like, that is not the issue. But, like, if you're sitting at one end of the table, you're going to have to be like, hey, hand me a card, please. Mm -hmm. Or, like pass this card down to that person on the other end or whatever. Easy solution, Mike. You just set up a Kickstarter and make an obnoxiously overpriced game mat for it and I'll buy it. (laughs) Only (laughs) if I include minutes. Big tiles. A a nice neoprene mat and some miniatures miniatures that are totally meaningless. Which you won't use because you're keeping your role secrets. (laughs) Right, right. You get to take out the miniature when you reveal your role to use your superpowers or when you die. And you put the miniature in front of you, indicating that you've used your once a game ability. Uh, we've, let's let's release this right it. now. All right, all right, off we go. But actually, the gameplay is very similar to Bang. Mm-hmm. The difference is items are face up and they're introduced slowly over time. So the basic rules are really easy. It takes five minutes to teach, if that. The investigation part of it's also helped out by the, the hermit cards. Because the hermit cards, like, you give it to somebody and it mm-hmm. says, take one damage if you're neutral and you see someone like move their little pawn you're like okay i know you're neutral now like right. i have information to work off of the hermit cards are what i think makes the game work so well right it's like there's a small dribble of information that you can get or mm-hmm. you can just be a crazy person just start shooting people right. actually you yeah. get to shoot and you get a card well right but like 
you actually don't get to choose whether you, you get more card rights based yeah. on your location, yeah. right? But it has a nice slow trickle of information during the course of the game, but the game isn't that long, right? There's a flow of information where you can kind of build a network of things as opposed to, right, you're kind of waiting for the socialness deck on where you have this trickle of additional right. information. You know, there's sort of two sets of item cards. There's the white cards, which are slightly more skewed in favor of hunters, and the black cards, which are slightly more skewed in favor of shadows. And so seeing where people choose from gives you a hint. It is fundamentally a roll and move because you don't have a lot of control over where you go, but it's a simple enough and quick enough game that doesn't really matter. And this is just a totally random point, but I love that it has a D6 and a D4 that you're rolling. Yep. I don't know any other game that does that. And it's also done for movement as well as the damage that you do because it's mm-hmm. the difference between the two dice values yeah. that that's how much damage you do to somebody. I see Frank trying to come up with another game that does that. I'm very curious if there's another one. You've said Frank's trigger words, which are, <laughs> I think this is the only game that does X. And that immediately triggers a database search. In yep, your brain. Yep. Yeah. I really like the fact that one of the bad guys that could randomly be in any game has the ability to just lie on these um, deduction cards. Like, they're all if-then statements. And his special power is, you can lie. You can just answer whatever you want. Yep. Which adds just enough uncertainty in there. The next one we had is one that I had for a while, and it disappeared from my box at a convention some years back, and I haven't been able to find another copy, although it has, I think, been recently re-released. I've got one, so just remind me. Do you have mine? (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) No, probably not. It is a game which was originally released only in German called Die Kutschfahrt zur Teufelsberg, which is translated to Coach Ride to the Devil's Castle. The original was in 2006, released by Adlungspiel, by Michael Palm and Lukas Zach. It was released in 2010 as Castle of the Devil. And like most of these, you've got a group of people who are on two different teams. The concept is this is all taking place on the coach ride on your way to this haunted castle where occult rituals are going to be taking place. And basically, you need to figure out who your teammates are. And between you, you have to collect a set of items that are sacred to your team. Inside the coach? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I love the visual. You Thanks. You sort of see these people, you know, kind of look at each other, passing each other things, <laughs> doing each other things. I want to say that that setup reminds me of, I think it was the Coen Brothers movie that just came out on Netflix, The yeah. Ballad of something. Anyway, it's a movie of shorts, and they had a short of three I, people I, in a I, coach. Spoilers. Spoilers. It basically mm, followed the same four, setup. Four or five people in a coach, and yeah, it's awesome. It was really good. But anyway, it's a fun little game, because it comes in a box that's about the size of a 3 by 5 card. One of those it's little tiny boxes. I've yeah, that's... published all their games as deck of cards. But there's a lot of gameplay in there. It's got items, and you can turn up and use the items to do things. You have other actions which involve investigating people to figure out who they are. And of course, you can pass things to people. It's your basic three actions. And you announce once you have all your items in your group, you can basically announce it. They go, we won. Oh, you're on the other team. Yeah, oh, you, we oh lost. you didn't. You weren't. Oh, yeah. yeah. There's a lot of that. The final announcement familiar to deduction game people. Because yeah, if you screw up, your entire team loses. So don't screw up. This next game on our list is kind of an edge case with the rules that we set up at the top of the episode. And that's, I think, going to be one of the more famous hidden role games in in the board game collection, which is Battlestar Galactica. I actually think we're just sneaking this in because we all wanted to talk about we it. We really do. I mean, this is a great game. I mean, it game. fits, but again, it's an interesting edge case. So this game came out in 2008 and was designed by Corey Kniezka. And this was also published in cahoots with Sci-Fi Channel when they were releasing the remake of Battlestar Galactica. And this game is good. This game is real good. It is probably 
the best integration of the theme with the gameplay. That's not called Dune. Okay, fair. (laughs) I'll give you that. I'll give you that. But Galactus is real good at capturing the feeling of the series. Man, what's the deal with these games that have great integrations with theme that go out of print? <laughs> Dune's gone. Battlestar's gone. Dune's coming back. It's coming back. I know. Also, Eventually. They've, 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 Don't you say Rex, motherfucker. They've also re- <laughs> no, no, as, no. Stop as, talking. So in this game, at the beginning of the game, each player selects a character from the Battlestar Galactica show. They all have their own special abilities as well as skill cards that they can select from. And there are five flavors of skill cards in the base game that each have their own kind of special powers and unique effects. In addition to their characters, each person is distributed a a secret loyalty card, which is either you are a Cylon or you are not a Cylon. Or maybe. We'll we'll get to that. Wait for it. (laughs) Throughout the game... You are all floating through the vastness of space where bad things just keep happening. Most of those bad things are Cylons, but also human nature. Those (laughs) skill cards must be played into a pool at the end of every round to overcome these bad things. And really, the best that you can hope for is nothing happens. But to further muddy the waters, all these skill cards are played face down, and two cards from the Destiny deck which is a mixture of all the different colored cards, is also added to each one. Yeah, and the way it works is the point values of certain types of cards are added together to make the total. Point values of other types of cards are subtracted from that. So you may have Cylons who are secretly playing their cards of the wrong color, and if they just play one, they're reducing the score, but they think, oh, no, the Destiny deck must have put that in. Oh, no, we failed. You know there are Cylons out there. You just don't know no, who they no, are. No, guys, I'm, I'm totally helping. It's fine. <laughs> To make things worse, after you are approximately halfway through the game, everyone gets a second loyalty card. So whereas you were playing as a human the first round of the game, the second round of the game, you might be... Suddenly you start hearing all along the watchtower for (laughs) no apparent reason. (laughs) And depending on number of players, you might have a character who is the sympathizer... If the humans are winning, the sympathizer is on the Cylons team. If the Cylons are winning, the sympathizer is on the humans team, which is a solid mechanic for for balance within the game because it it can be quite easy for a good Cylon player to run away with a victory. This is not a lightweight game. Most of the ones we've talked about are pretty easy, but this is a serious commitment. There's a lot going on. Various people based on their ranks may be the president or the admiral, which gives them additional authority. You can throw people in the brig. You can push people out an airlock if you think they're a Cylon or you have enough authority to do it anyway. (laughs) There's also a whole space battle component going on because you're also being attacked by Cylon ships at the same time. There's a lot of layers going on. Now, just as a point of order here, I will point out that the initial game's combat was not great every so often instead of having to deal with one of those votes that we had mentioned ships would just show up and your pilots are like yes i finally have something to do i think they fixed a lot of the problems with that system in the expansions which yeah were way more interesting most of the expansions in a rarity for big box games like this are quite good or half of it with one glaring (laughs) exception (laughs) 
We don't speak about that. So that's like the Galactic 85 of the... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah, the Pegasus expansion has two bits. One is the Pegasus, which is functionally a second battle star it's that so they good. come along the way. And it's really good, and it adds a lot of groovy mechanics. And then there is New Caprica, which is an alternate endgame, which you should just not play. The thing that's really telling about this for me is there was a big fancy battle mat that someone produced, and it has all the space for everything in the game and all of the expansions, except New Caprica. Because <laughs> they just acknowledge that nobody plays that. Nope. Yep. <laughs> but yeah, this is one that has been consistently good. I haven't played it in a long time. It doesn't get to the table very often because it is a big time commitment. And you need to get the right people together for this because there are people who really don't do well with Hidden Trader games and being suddenly betrayed or switching sides. One of my favorite memories of this game was when the show was coming out, we would get together to watch the episode and then play a game of this. And there was one night we were playing in which Joe had put in some cards to a vote. A it single was the, red card. A single red card. It was the very first vote of the game. A so we're all just getting settled card. in. And one of our other friends who we're playing with, like, we reveal the cards and he looks at it and just like, nobody's really saying anything. And out of nowhere, he just says, Joe's a Cylon. So I was the only pilot. So I was the only, the only one that had access to red, red cards. cards. <laughs> and Destiny decided, why don't I add both the red cards to this vote? <laughs> so Destiny totally screwed me that yeah, game. Yeah, and there was like, well, I'll see myself to the airlock. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. There's just so many neat things that are thematically tied in. Like, there's a couple characters, like Baltar gets an extra loyalty card at the start of the game, so he's slightly more likely to be a Cylon. And he may not be. I mean, the odds are still probably that he's human. But if he's in the game, everybody's giving him the side eye from the first turn. Yep. I really think this is certainly as far as TV tie-in board games go, which are historically not very good. This is a That's really generous. prominent exception. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, this game is actually really, really, really good. For a while, we weren't able to play this game with certain people <laughs> because yeah. they because weren't caught up spoilers. Because yeah. there are some character powers that are also spoilers. Yeah, exactly. So, if you think this game sounds like something you should do, first of all, make sure you've watched the Battlestar Galactica series, the remake. Because most of it, like the expansions for the game, most of it is really good. Gets a little weird at the end, but, you know, whatever. And then go play this game, because it's also really good. Good luck finding it for a reasonable price. Yeah, this is true. <laughs> but actually, if you don't like the length or the complexity or anything, the idea of playing cards or whatever, committing it to a task that has to be done with someone who's working against you, they did do Dark Moon, which is kind of a stripped down, was originally like BSG the Dice game. It's not as good. Dark Moon released in 2001, designed by Evan Derrick, published by Stronghold Games. It actually started out as sort of a fan project on Board Game Geek called BSG Express, which basically was explicitly taking the Battlestar Galactica game, stripping out the space combat and some of the extraneous stuff. And then I guess the folks at Stronghold said, this is a good enough game. We're going to take off all the stuff that will get us sued for copyright infringement and release this game. I kind of like Dark Moon. I, I know there are some people Moon. at this table that don't. It feels like I... it ends before it should. I really hate Dark Moon. Like, this game does not do anything for me. Like, I hate everything about it because I feel wow. like with the fate dice, so you use dice that have a positive, a negative, and a blank, and you are required to roll them, I feel like I have no control over my votes in Dark Moon. 
Because you could easily get into a situation in which you must reveal yourself because you rolled poorly. Well, not that you must reveal yourself, but that even though you're on, quote unquote, the good guy's team, you're playing a negative die because that's all you have. And this goes back to our complaint with Werewolf, where my only defense is, sorry, that's what I rolled. And again, I don't like it. I don't. Okay. You're allowed to not like things, Mike. It's okay. (laughs) Brian, stop forcing me to like (laughs) things. Let people not like things. Yeah, the distillation of the various card colors and numbers into dice that you roll, I think, was the distillation I like the least into Dark Moon from Battlestar. Because, like, the card system in Battlestar gives you a ton of flexibility. And part of the reason it gives you a ton of flexibility is because there are other things you can use the cards on. So they're a resource. So you might not use them on votes. You might use them on other things. And you have some control over what cards you have. Right. But because Dark Moon doesn't have that, they distilled it down to this dice rolling mechanic, which, like Mike said, there is sometimes a defense of, well, I rolled three negatives. Sorry, guys. So if you're looking for a shorter thing that gives the BSG feel, you may want to look at Dark Moon. But it is is not a perfect transition. It's a perfectly cromulent. I'd rather play BSG if I had the time. Yeah, it's a perfectly crumbling game. There's that idea of playing cards to a common task and, you know, allowing the traders to screw up the task and make it harder for the players. If you decide to take off just all the theme and concentrate strictly on the social deduction aspects, you'd have the resistance. 2009 was originally web-published, interesting, but more notably by Indie Boards and Cards, designed by Don Eskridge. And this is a very simple game. You have two teams, the resistance and the imperial spies. Each round, the resistance tries to carry out a mission. One person becomes a resistance leader, chooses a group of people to go on the mission, and of course, half of them are spies, half of them are resistance people. Then the people commit cards to the task. If any one of those is a traitor or whatever, fail card, then the task fails. And you play best out of seven, best out of five. Yeah, first to three. First to three. That's the game. I mean, literally, that is all. Very simple. So it's like, okay, I know one of the people who was on that last mission is a traitor, but I also need to have a certain number of people on this next mission, so I'm going to have to pick some of them. Yep, there also were some cards that gave you one-shot powers to give you a little more information into the game. Yeah, plot cards. Yeah. There was a second version of it, if you will, called the Resistance Avalon, released a few years later, which is set in Arthurian Britain, but it's still basically the same concept. You have King Arthur's Knights and you have Mordred's agents going on it. Well, they added roles too, right? Yeah, there are roles in it. So Avalon adds a seer role. Merlin. Mm-hmm. And Merlin knows who the bad guys are, who Mordred's minions are. But of course, if basically the bad guys fail, they can try to identify Merlin. Mm-hmm. And you'll see that mechanic of, oh, we get one last shot to mm-hmm. reveal the counter traitor in a few other games. Right. And that is kind of a throwback to the seer in Werewolf, which is kind of the first role that wasn't a werewolf, which is basically, I'm a person who can open my eyes, point at someone, figure out if werewolf or not. And in Werewolf, of course, you can't just say, aha, Mike's a werewolf, because then the other werewolves know you're the seer and will murder you immediately. So. And it's the same kind of strategy here for Merlin, where it's like, hey, Merlin has all the information, but can't use it freely. Yeah. Which is interesting. Oh, dramatic irony. <laughs> I do like that they specifically say you can combine this with the resistance, because of course you have dystopian future people with knights. Why not? Sure. <laughs> I'd watch that TV show. Gradually, you've gotten roles. Yeah, this is another one of those games that falls into the category of, we have eight to nine people <laughs> for a game night, and we all want to play the same game. Well, that severely limits the, <laughs> the list of games we can play. Let's play The Resistance. <laughs> the Resistance games are sort of the platonic ideal of a social deduction game. They're really good examples of the genre. So if you only get one, you're probably not going wrong with either of those. The Resistance did include one nice thing. Everyone's in the game. And you'll see a lot of these games, yeah, no especially 
Mafia Werewolf have player elimination. Right. Even Battlestar gives you a very limited role if you're taken right. out of the game. Shadowhunters obviously drops you, etc. I think The Resistance is a perfectly fine game. Again, it gets dangerously close to that. I'm going to make decisions without enough information to get more information. And it's fine. Like, it works. It doesn't really do anything for me. And I think that's going to be important for the future development of these games. I think a lot of them take a page from Resistance. And they're all meh, in my opinion. <laughs> Actually, the resistance is pretty dry. I mean, it's so cut and dry. I mean, it's, yeah. And whereas Werewolf, you get into the character, the voting, lynching, and everything. Resistance is choose, 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 yes, no, play cards. It's very go. mechanical. Yeah. yeah, I mean, in Werewolf, at least, everybody knows what a werewolf is, and you can chew on that scenery a little bit. Whereas in Resistance, it's just like, oh, I'm one person in the space future that disagrees with the other people <laughs> in the space future. Yeah. It's extremely boiled down, for yes. sure. And it has a theme because they say it has a theme, and then they, they make the hilarious effort to say, oh, well, these, these other games are in the same universe. Oh, ooh. <laughs> same universe. Does it actually generic. say they're in the same universe? Yeah, yeah. There's a, I think Koo says it's a Resistance universe game. You're like, really? <laughs> no, no, not really. Like, who cares? <laughs> Did you love the universe of Resistance? <laughs> so so love. What are you Koo. making up? <laughs> I really like indie boarding games games like they've done a solid job and the components oh, yeah. of resistance are good. The art is good. The cardboard is thick. It is just a dry game. Now, if you want flavor, <laughs> our next one is we've actually seen this made into a sort of hidden team deduction game a number of times. I don't think anyone has quite nailed it, yeah. which is a shame because the theme is tailor made for it. What we're talking about is The Thing. This was a 2010 release by Mark Chaplin. Uh, it was just a web-published game. And it is based on the classic John Carpenter movie, The Thing, where basically you've got a bunch of people at an Antarctic outpost, an alien organism shows up, and it is able to sort of take the form of other people. So it starts with one infected person, and then over the course of the game, they can gradually corrupt more people to their side. I think this is the first one, our example, where you've got, other than sort of the mid-game Cylon switch, this is one where you're actively able to take actions to grow your team. I didn't do that. Processing. <laughs> Processing. No, no, no. I have an extremely rare game from Splatterspellin from the mid-90s called Beast, which is basically a game based on the thing, mm -hmm. which lets you grow your team. It has a weird puzzle, and I think it's a horrible game. I still kept my copy because I'm just obsessed with Splatter. Because there's only so many of them and out And they there. only did like a couple hundred or so. I hate to point out a common theme among all of these games that we've just talked about, but like I feel like the mechanic in which the trader can grow their team is not good. <laughs> Yet. Yeah. You've got basically a, a deck of events that's got sort of three-act structure that sort of models the flow of the movie. And basically the thing is trying to either assimilate all the humans or construct a saucer you can use to return home. The humans are trying to get away and get on the helicopter to get to the coast without bringing the thing with them. It's a fine little game. And again, it's a theme and a concept that really cries out for a really good game. Yep. There's been another one called The Thing at Outpost 31. There was another one recently, Who Goes There? Oh. There's a bunch of games out there that are all sort of based on this thing, and none of them have quite nailed it, and that makes me sad. The one we played at Community, that one was pretty good. It was fine. We weren't playing it very well, but it was fine. What was that one? I cannot remember the name of it. I think it's it. Who Goes There. Who Goes There. Which yeah. was, was the there. name of the original short story 
that oh. inspired the thing. <laughs> Correct. I actually like who goes there. There's some weird edge cases that were kind of strange, like where we were like people were stuck inside the building. <laughs> yeah, where people were stuck inside the building. But like largely, I mean, I think that was mostly like experience more than anything yeah. else. But like I think who goes there is a really good addition of that. Yeah, I was enjoying it while we were playing it. Uh, yeah. I haven't actually played that one. So it's for y'all playing it. And the only thing that I took away from y'all playing who goes there is somebody was sleeping with a dog. <laughs> yes. You can sleep with the dogs so and not take you, damage when you, when you're outside. When you go to sleep, you have to sleep with someone else. Never or go to sleep alone. you take a penalty. Or you get dealt like a random card, right? Mm-hmm. But if you sleep with the thing, congratulations, you're on their team now. That's how the traitor passing works. And one guy starts with a dog, so you can just sleep with your dog. You can just sleep with his dog, right? That that counts. That's Although, if you remember the, the movie, movie, the yeah. dog was originally the thing, so that may not be your best choice. The one other thing I want to mention about the 2010 thing game is that the expansion they released has, I think, the best title ever, which is the thing, Man is the Warmest Place to Hide. (laughs) That's pretty good. Which is just profoundly creepy and awesome at the same time. I love that all the cards there are just like screenshots of the movie. Like it's, it's, Mm -hmm. especially since the movie's so schlocky and delightful. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I'm schlocky? Yeah, really. Take that back. That is a masterwork. Definitely definitely schlocky. John Carpenter's (laughs) best movie ever. You're all fired. (laughs) I didn't say I didn't enjoy it. I like a good schlock. Uh, Don't worry, Brian. I've got you. I've never actually seen the thing. Oh, my God. It's amazing. You you just, like, have this John Carpenter-shaped hole in your history. He hadn't seen Big Trouble in Little China until, like, three months ago when we played the board game, and he was like, I don't understand what any of these people are. Oh man, that must be a different. I think, I, I think Joe actually strapped him to the couch at I that did. point and yeah. made him watch the movie. Yeah, man. And that movie is weird. Is yes, so weird. And yes. Brilliant. How about they live? I mean, obey. Nope. No. Should we just go through all John Carpenter? <laughs> Somebody's yeah, getting the box. I'm pulling it up right now. <laughs> oh man. I am cognizantly aware of the thing within the zeitgeist of society. You just haven't actually I seen the movie. I just haven't actually seen it. You should John see John Carpenter movie. did Darkest Star, which is the only way you can say that movie name, Darkest Star. I have and not that seen is it. another fascinating oh, man. movie. Dark Star is great because it's a movie that has a bomb, a sentient bomb, that decides partway through the movie that it has to fulfill its purpose by exploding. Sure. And like you have long sequences of the pilot trying to convince the bomb not to explode yet. It's amazing. Yep. So in 2013, I went to a gaming event that did not involve any of you people. And what? while I was How there, dare you? I played what I think is probably my favorite social deduction game, hidden roles, hidden teams game of all time, which is uh, Fantasy Flight's 2013 release of Bloodbound, designed by Kaylee Krinzer. In this game, every player is a vampire of one of two clans. You've got the Clan of the Beast and the Clan of the Rose, also known as Blue Team and Red Team. And your objective is to kill the leader of the opposing clan. You do that by stabbing each other violently with knives. Well, a knife that you share because you're vampires on a budget. So on your turn, you take the included cardboard knife and you slide it across the table at an opponent who then must reveal one third of the information that they can show about themselves. Each role has three tokens that they are assigned. There is a number token to indicate ranking within the team, and then two loyalty tokens, one of which could be blank. And so every time that you make an accusation at somebody, they are forced to reveal some aspect of the information about them. So it's got this great slow trickle of information, but also 
you as the person who is being accused gets to pick what you reveal. So you could reveal your blank loyalty token. You could reveal your number, which allows you to use your special power. Then you get the knife and can make the next accusation. Yeah, they do some really neat things in this game. The person you're trying to take out on the opposite team is the one with the lowest number. Right? Yeah, so the number one character is the elder. But they might not be in the if game. If they're not in the game, then the number two. And if they're not in the game, then the number three. If someone reveals the number three, it's like, huh, you might be the leader. But I need to figure out who the other people are. Because if you kill the wrong person, your team loses. The thing I really like about this game is the game ends when a single person is killed. Yes, no player elimination. Which is so great. Because at that point, everyone flips over all their stuff and you figure out if you won or lost. Yep. Right, and that's it. You're just done. Actually, the thing I like about the game most is that at the start of the game, the bottom right of your card, you show the icon on the bottom right of your card to the person on your left. They know what team you're on, except, except the number three has theirs reversed. Has the opposite color in the corner. <laughs> if somebody reveals a number three, the person to the right who saw that at the start of the game just looks at them and it's like, now I have to recalibrate everything based on what you did because you're on the other team. There is an option for an odd number of players with the Inquisitor, which is meh. meh. Right, like they want neither team to win because they're the humans and don't don't play this game yeah with no just number. play it with an even number it's much better it works to continue the game but i've never seen inquisitor win one of my favorite powers though is the one that says from now on you're trying to kill the lowest ranking person on our team instead that's actually the elder's power so if mm -hmm. the elder figures out that oh the jig is up he's been discovered if he flips over his token the opposing team is now trying to kill the lowest ranked person on the, your the highest team. Rank? The highest number, highest which number. is the lowest. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And then there's bodyguards who can jump in the way and intercept an <laughs> attack that's aimed at someone else. It's a fun game. It's a fun game. It's really light. It's very, very core. I have a very small amount of information. I'm going to piece together a web of interactions based on that single piece of information that I have. Although I do think the art on the original edition of the game gives me too many flashbacks. Oh, it's very oh, World of Darkness LARPing. like. Sure. It's uh, very World of Darkness. So World of Darkness. Oh, yeah. Did they change the artwork for future releases? I think they were coming out with an actual release that included art. Possibly a theme change, maybe. But vampires. No, no, no vampires. <laughs> I mean, they're so 90s, man. <laughs> so just to kind of describe the artwork for listeners at home who haven't seen this, this is artwork that is photorealistic graphic design, like right up to the point where this might just be pictures of people in costumes. Like It's pictures of people in it's costumes. Definitely oh, oh, it's the costume. flying frog approach. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> they look like somebody just went to a, a vampire LARP convention <laughs> and said, hey, we need... We need some people <laughs> yeah. because it's not great. I was trying to see if the second edition has different art. The cover is full on anime. <laughs> really? Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, wow. It really is. Yeah. Huh. It's not bad. I could see how they could do all the cards in this style. The new art reminds me a little bit more of like Shadowrun if Shadowrun were vampires type <laughs> art style. As long as it comes with a cardboard knife, I'm in. So the next one we want to talk about, which is, again, just a variation on the theme, but one that I think works pretty well. Two Rooms and a Boom came out in 2013, designed by Alan Girding and Sean McCoy from Tuesday Night Games. You have two separate teams of people. They are officially the red team and the blue team. <laughs> there is a president on one side and a bomber on the other side. And basically, they're separated into two rooms. There's no communication between them. And the people in each room basically elect a leader, and the people within each room are allowed to share their loyalty cards however they want. 
after three minutes on the first mm-hmm. round, the leaders of both sides negotiate how many people will be swapped between rooms. There's three rounds of this. There's a three-minute round, a two-minute round, a one-minute round. Then you do a last swap. At that point, if the bomber and the president are in the same room, the bomber team wins. Otherwise, the president team wins. It's sort of the kind of thing you've got with a resistance game. A group of people have to do things together, and some subset of them may be on the other team. It's more like the werewolfy thing in that it's, it's kind of wide open as far as what you decide to show people and how you make those decisions. It's an interesting exercise in kind of big group think. Again, you have to play with the right group of people. It's not necessarily a hardcore gamers game, but I think it's entertaining. I feel like this harkens back to those games that we talked about at the top of the episode from the 1920s, where it's like somebody just took a social exercise and put it in a box and called it a game. Because like that's definitely what Two Rooms and a Boom feels like. You could very easily play this game with a deck of playing cards. Sure. I mean, they do have a lot of alternate variant rules. There's literally two other teams of stuff, including one guy who is a drunk and just kind of randomly is on one team or the other. I like that it has timed rounds. That's interesting. It's certainly a concise game. Yeah. It limits the amount of just yelling at people that you'll get in a long game of Werewolf. Although sometimes the same people are yelling, they're just yelling faster. <laughs> that's fair. And that's More less efficient comprehensibly. Yelling. I mean, sometimes you just need to yell faster. I mean, like, that's just the way politics work. <laughs> so moving on from terrorism onto uh, murder mysteries, the next one we want to cover is Deception Murder in Hong Kong, released in 2014 by Jolly Thinkers, designed by Toby Ho. In this game, one player is playing the forensic scientist who actually knows the details of the crime. They're the ones who actually understand everything. They've got the perfect knowledge. They have to try and get the other players, who are all playing investigators, to come to the same conclusion that they did. The trick is that one of the other investigators is also the murderer. (laughs) So you're essentially having a forensic investigator select keywords off of tile sets to give information about where the murder was committed, how it was committed. There's one other third piece of information I can't recall. Motive, maybe. Motive, maybe? Yeah. Yeah. It's a weird cross between, like, social deduction and Mm -hmm. Mysterium and Codenames. When you were describing it, I was thinking, man, this game sounds a lot like Mysterium. (laughs) It does. Is one of these players a ghost? Is that what's going on? (laughs) It's a ghost investigator. It's really weird. (laughs) Yeah, the forensic investigator is really restricted on what they can say. It's yes. pretty much just one word off the key cards. But it is literally patterned after Mysterium. Fascinating. I like Mysterium a lot. Yeah. Have you not played this yet? I have not. Oh, okay. I- I've got it. It plays well at large player counts, which is where it kind of fits in my collection, and it's easy to teach. It plays up to 12 people? That's nonsense. Yeah, because yeah, well, I mean, I it's like there's the high. killer, and then the killer may have associates. Yeah, they're accomplices, yeah. Right, exactly. Um, Everyone yeah. has, like, descriptions randomly dealt out of where they were during the murder or whatever, and Basically, the forensic investigator is trying to pin one of them by giving clues that don't really relate to those cards. Yeah. Although sometimes you could just have a bad draw of cards. Like one time like when I was the murderer. Yeah, exactly. One game I was the actual murderer. And like my weapons that I committed the crime with were so unbelievably obvious <laughs> based on the keywords they could use. It, it was a very short game. <laughs> and there's not much you can do. Yeah, you can argue back and forth with each other. as like, oh, well, I think that the forensic scientist is trying to give us this information with this thing that clearly implicates me. Yes, well, when me. he said lumberjack, he didn't mean <laughs> yeah. chainsaw. He meant red shirts, clearly. Right, exactly. <laughs> They're shirts. It's the, the most classic thing about them. That's the first thing you think of with lumberjacks. Sure. <laughs> I think of the Monty Python song, actually. And I think there's there's a mechanism for the forensic scientists to be able to discard one of the, the tiles that they have if they're just like, none of these apply, this is garbage. That sounds fun, I'd like to give this a try. Yeah, I'd, I'd be happy to set that up. As a weird kind of twist on the standard, I get my role, I know what it is, there's Good Cop, Bad Cop, 2014, 
released by Overworld Games, designed by Brian Hink and Clayton Skank, really? I'm so sorry. Good Cop, Bad Cop is your typical team game. They're good cops and bad cops. The big difference is in order to plan to shoot or injure someone, you have to grab a gun from the middle of the table, point at someone, and they get a chance to reply before you actually hit them. (laughs) And there's action cards you can do to screw with things. The weird thing about Good Cop, Bad Cop is how it handles roles. Everyone's given three cards and they represent, you know, Good Cop, Bad Cop. And slowly as you identify, you're forced to turn up some of your cards, but it's the majority of your cards that determine your actual role, which means the entire distribution can be unusual. So the game's a little less predictable. You flip over a good cop and you've got two bad cops hidden. Totally. And yeah. The one and only time I tried to play this, the person who was teaching us did a really terrible job of explaining that That's mechanic. That's always a problem. And it left just such a bad impression in my mind that I've not revisited Good Cop, Bad Cop and really don't feel a desire, mostly because I don't find it different enough from games like Bang or Resistance or Bloodbound to really even occupy my brain space. Yeah, it's not as good as Bloodbound. It's, again, my issue with Bang is its complexity. And Good Cop, Bad Cop has that feel. I do like the fact that you're forced to announce your intent and give everyone a chance to react. I'm going to shoot you now. Wait, wait, (laughs) don't. (laughs) So this is modeling being in the break room. Hey, everyone, I'm going to shoot Frank. Is that all right with everybody? I don't like Frank. Uh, I think he's bad. Yeah, sure. (laughs) You good, Joe? It's also to give that idea of standoff. Yeah. Because, you know, if you point a gun with me, screw him. Pointing a gun back at you. Bang meets cash and guns. Yeah, a little bit. And that's how Frank and Jason murder each other. But I do like the trend of the roles not being quite so set in stone. And continuing that trend of screwing with the idea of roles, One Night Ultimate Werewolf, well, fixes werewolf for me. I'll never play werewolf (laughs) again. It's 2014 Bezier Games, designed by Ted Osbach and Akisa Okui. And it really screws with the whole werewolf idea. Whereas in Werewolf, you have multiple nights. There's one person removed. One Night Ultimate Werewolf introduced the app, first of all. So it's app-driven for your moderator. But also, it's one night. There's one vote on who the werewolf or werewolves are. The thing that makes One Night Ultimate Werewolf much more interesting than Werewolf is there's actual information. Yay. And it's <laughs> one concept. vote. It's really short. That goes back to what we were saying about Bloodbound, where it's like, as soon as someone's dead, the game is done. Let's totally. see if we win. This also means it's a five or ten minute game. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it works a lot better with smaller teams, including like three or four, which is unusual. Yes. What happens in this game, though, is everyone gets a roll. There are also three additional roles or so in the middle of the table. So you don't know how many roles are available. Then you do the whole night phase where everyone does their whatever their role is. But their role is often things like look at your token, look at two tokens and swap them. This means that you may not be who you thought you were when you went to bed. So people are often revealing information during the really intense five-minute discussion. And, you know, if you believe them and, oh, I swapped these two roles, and suddenly you realize that, oh, I'm the werewolf. <laughs> you don't look at your role again when you unless, wake up? Unless you had a role that lets you look. Oh, okay. <laughs> you don't. So you don't even know who... Oh, wow. I okay. really hate it when I go to sleep as one person and wake up as somebody different. That's the yeah, worst. Yeah, I mean, that happens so damn often. In that tiny little five minutes, you're often starting with a lie just to try to throw people off to get people to reveal information that might reveal a swap. It might tell so you, you who you have really are. What's really going on. <laughs> and all this happens in such a tiny amount of time, all the deceit, fluffing and everything Uh 
it, it's awesome. It certainly I mean, does sound like more of a game than Werewolf. Oh, totally. I would probably play that. They continue this development of that game. There's One Night Ultimate Vampire and One Night Ultimate Alien that add just more roles. So now we get to talk about a fascinating game. Mike's favorite game, actually. Nope. Literally his favorite game in the universe. So I think. the role of Joe in this discussion <laughs> is going to be played by Mike. So let's talk about Secret Hitler. It was released in 2016, published by Great Wolf and Cabbage, uh, designed by Mike Boxleitner, Tommy Manranges, and Max Temkin. He did Cards Against Humanity and a couple other games in that vein. And so in Secret Hitler, at the start of the game, you're given a role. You're either a liberal or a fascist or you're Hitler. Let's start off by saying the topic that someone in the game is Hitler does make some people uncomfortable. Yeah, and like I have some friends who like this game conceptually from a gameplay standpoint, but just can't get past the fact that one of the players is Hitler. It's kind of a thing. One of the interesting things that they did with the Kickstarter is there was actually a set of stickers for the box and for the cards that would replace Hitler with, I think, leader. Yes. Oh, just so you could genericize it if there were yes. people who were or Hilter for the Monty Python fans. <laughs> Sorry, secret dictator. During the course of the gameplay, when it's your turn, you are going to decide one other player that you want to form a government with. So you will be the president. Someone else will be the chancellor. And you select a chancellor, and then everyone on the table votes on whether that government will occur. If that government occurs, you draw three tiles, which are either liberal policies or fascist policies. The president discards one of them, hands the other two to the chancellor. The chancellor selects one of those two to implement. There are more fascist policies than liberal policies. I think a two to one ratio. So it's much more likely that like you could draw a hand of three fascists, for example, than you could draw a hand of three liberals. The goal of the fascists is to get six fascist policies implemented. The goals for liberals is to get five liberal policies implemented before the other team gets their policies implemented. The twist here is the Hitler role. So as Hitler, there's a bonus objective for the fascist, which is after three fascist policies have been played, if Hitler at any point after that is named chancellor in a government that succeeds in occurring, the fascists immediately win because Hitler is now in power. Although to be fair, the liberals do have their own objective. It's important to know that Hitler doesn't know who the other fascists are. Yes. The fascists know who Hitler is. Just such a weird setup. No, it's a great setup. It means to be Hitler is terrifying all the time, which is great. I hate literally everything about this game. Okay. I hate the theme, and I hate the fact that it has really no mechanics to let you suss things out except for... I got three fascist policies. Sorry, guys. That, no, that's no, my draw. They're, they're, on the board, there's... On their board, there are things that allow the president to look at no, that's players' true. hidden roll cards. I do like that. There are not a lot of them. So I don't hate everything about <laughs> this game. There are not a lot of them. They're a very small number. Don't you have to have a certain number of policies before you can get access to those? Uh, so yeah. No, is every, is every fascist policy has an effect. For some players, not everyone. So when you play a fascist policy, there is some small benefit, which is the president will likely get to use a power. Not guaranteed on every fascist policy, but when you're playing with the maximum number of players, every single one you place does something. It's either like look at someone else's alignment card or it's kill someone. And so if the liberals kill Hitler, they win. I really don't like that this game is in essence a two-player game played as part of a group. Because really, if you are neither the chancellor or the president, you're part of the discussion, but... You still get to vote on the government. You still vote on whether the government occurs or not. And the game is hyper fast, right? So like the game plays in about 45 minutes, if that. Turn of a government takes like a minute or two, right? Because it's like, I select a chancellor, everyone votes, 
then if the government happens, we pass some tokens around. You're not wrong that, like, during that short window, there are only two people playing, but it's really a short period of time. And it's got, in my opinion, the same dryness that Resistance has. I would disagree. It has a little more going for it because, whereas Resistance is just, oh, I know one of these people. In Secret Hitler, you know, especially if you see a pass, if you pass someone like a liberal and a fascist, and then they put up the fascist, you know a lot about that person. Right, but that's not that different than what you get in Resistance. You know it on one person, not, oh, one of these three people is a traitor, which is pretty much guaranteed. Sure. You know, oh, this guy is a traitor. Now what do I do with that? Yeah. I mean, like I said, this game is, I think, the evolution of Resistance, and I think it takes that formula and expands upon it. But it still has a bunch of the same problems. And it's the same thing that I was saying with Dark Moon, where I'm just like, when I play this game, I feel like there are often times where it's just like, doesn't really matter what I actually am, because of the things that I'm dealt, decisions are made for me by the game. Yeah, I just feel like that problem is less here just because the game moves so much faster, right? Like there's just, one of the things I actually like about Secret Hitler actually took off with one of my friend groups that like doesn't play board games that often. They really dug it because it is a very simple game. It definitely inspires the imagination a lot, right? Thinking about like the mechanisms that are going on. But also, it's dead simple. You pick a chancellor, we hold a government, you get two or three tiles, and then you argue about what just happened. So the problem is, it's like, you don't like that mechanic in games. Yeah, no, you're not wrong And there. like, that's the core mechanic in this game is I just implemented a fascist policy. Let's the two of us argue about what just happened. Like, oh, well, I got three fascist policies. I didn't have a choice. Or, hey, I just tested Mike. Mike's good now. There's a, an ongoing stream of information that is generated by that. But you're not wrong that like, hey, I draw three fascist policies. I give you two. You put one down, everyone looks like us and goes, what the fuck? I was like, well, I got three. And you're like, well, I got two. Right? Well, like, and, that's and a mechanic. There, there right? lies my problem, right? Is you've just described really the only two arguments that are most commonly used when information is revealed to the players. Right, like, that's, the, that's the bluffing part, right? I'm, I'm going to lie about this thing. Like, hey, I'm going to discard a liberal policy, pass him to fascists. Right. Like, and granted, I don't like that limited options within bluffing games like that. I see. I actually do like it. I think this is the best implementation of it because what you get is now you have a narrow set to argue around. Sure. Right? There's not like an infinite amount of bluffing, right? You could be any one of 18 different roles. You're just like, there's a possibility that you're lying. There's a possibility that you're not lying. But like the way you're going to argue about it is very, very narrow. And so like you have a short argument, then you go to the next round, have another short argument, go to the next round. Admittedly, I don't like games like this. I'd rather not play Secret Hitler or Resistance. Like those will never be on my options to play. None of us are going play. to make you. I'm definitely <laughs> going to make him. Help, help. They're <laughs> making right, so me play Secret fascist. Hitler. <laughs> Now, I will say, I was listening to a interview with one of the creators of this game, and they want to demonstrate how easy it is to get people on board with your argument for a fascist or liberal agenda. And, like, that's interesting, but as somebody who doesn't love politics and political arguments... Well, to be clear, the designer, as you said, is one of the folks behind Cards Against Humanity. They have a distinct political bias. (laughs) Yeah, that's one way to put it. They for sure do. There's a great line in the frequently asked questions on the secret hitler website in the fact it says i don't think there's anything funny or cool about fascism who can i complain to and the answer is president donald j trump 1600 pennsylvania (laughs) right (laughs) yeah that sounds about like their political bent. i think that's the other thing playing this game just makes me feel a little gross yeah i mean that's the intention that's one of the things i actually like about this game is it's meant to make you feel a little gross 
that's like cards against humanity's whole shtick right it's like you play this game and you have fun doing it but then when you look back on it you're like oh that was am i is that really who i am <laughs> is that who i am now did i really just jump up and down and say i'm hitler we win because sometimes you do that in this game joe you do that in a lot of games <laughs> let's be honest we're playing agricola why are you hitler? i don't understand I know my friend group this is one of our go-to games I think part of the reason is as a group that group of my friends has a lot of political differences among it (laughs) so I think this is a game where we can pull some of that out in a way that is like socially acceptable because like we functionally don't talk politics because it's it's problematic worthwhile onto games that make you feel a little bit dirty if you look at the history of insider and where words just google it it's a bit ugly. There's Insider, which is 2016 by Oink Games, designed by Kwaji Daichi Okano, Kito Shinma, and Akihiro Ito, as well as Werewords, which is published by Bezier Games, designed by Ted Alsbach. I won't go into the background, but look if you're curious, and it's a little awkward. Essentially, this is kind of that werewolfy thing wrapped around 20 questions, that old parlor game, you know, where animal, mineral, vegetable, you get 20 questions, you can answer yes, no, maybe, and you try to find out a thing. You're given a card or an app which tells you what the thing is, and one person has to get it across to the others. But an insider adds a insider who knows what the answer is, and so has to absolutely make sure that the people get the 20 question thing in time. If they succeed, the actual object of the game is for the rest of the players to figure out who the insider is, who actually gave the clues that are right. Werewords takes us a one step further and adds werewolves who are just trying to screw up the game, basically by giving, just asking bogus questions, or if they're the clue giver, just spouting off whatever they want to, which is a bizarre thing. Whichever side loses gets one chance to identify the opposing team. That's so weird. And it totally works. That's really strange. WearWords actually works really well. The app's wonderful. Insider has that little clunky moment where, oh, we didn't make it, so there's no guessing. I guess we just play again. Yeah, Oink Games is fascinating. We talked about them a little bit a couple episodes ago. They did Deep Sea Adventure and a bunch of other little, tiny, awesome, (laughs) bizarre Japanese games. And I love them. Yes. I mean, it's interesting that it really goes back to that parlor game idea. I mean, 20 Questions is just an old classic parlor game. And wrapping it with that kind of theme makes you wonder what other old parlor games we're going to get next. I'm hoping that Human Punishment Social Deduction 2.0 will be the next game that Mike will refuse to play with me. <laughs> well, apparently you have a whole group of friends that will play Secret I, Hitler I do, with you. No, no, no. Like, I think, Mike, so. I think the reason I got is for them because I think they'll really like this game. Yeah, Joe calls them his real friends. It's okay. How is Human Punishment different than Secret Hitler? Because in my book, that sounds like you just said the same thing. <laughs> The original game was released in 2018. There was just a Kickstarter for uh, an expansion called Hellgate, which I just got, which does a bunch of really weird stuff with the social deduction, which I haven't even fully grokked yet. It was designed by Stefan Gadot and is published by Gadot Games. And in Human Punishment, you're either a mercenary, a human, or a machine. And at the start of the game, you're going to get two face-down loyalty cards, which will be either human, human times two, machine, machine times two. If you have one of each, you're a mercenary, If you're more human, you're human. If you're more robot, you're robot. More human than human? More human than human. One of the interesting things is at the start of the game, there are a couple of weapons that are laid out in the center of the table, which are the weapons that the players can use during the game as they kind of reveal what other players are. And then on your turn, you either look at someone's face down card or equip a weapon and shoot it at someone, or you draw a program. And programs are cards that kind of like are the engine of discovery. They'll either allow you to 
do something special or they'll allow you some long-term power. And there are a couple of loyalty cards in the program deck. So if you draw a loyalty card in the program deck, that is now part of your set of loyalty cards, which no one knows about, and might change your faction during the course of the game. As a human, you're trying to defeat all the machines. As the machines, you're trying to defeat all the humans. And as the mercenary, you're trying to be the last one standing. I mean, that does actually sound really interesting. And just from your description there, like, it's funny how many of those mechanics I'm like, oh, they clearly borrowed that from Bang. And right, they clearly exactly. borrowed that from... Avalon. But again, journey of self-discovery here, folks, <laughs> doesn't feel like it's going to leave me with the same impression that Secret Hitler does. No, no, definitely Aww. not. Definitely not. I'm looking forward to get it to the table once I get my copy of it from the Kickstarter. The game looks really cool. And like in the expansion, they have a bunch of like events going on in the world that like affect the gameplay which seems interesting. I'm not sure how it's going to work out, but... I'm curious to see what happens. Yeah. Also, if the mercenaries aren't human and they're not robot... Cyborgs, man. What are they? They're cyborgs. Awesome. Your part machine, Why part man. Why not just call them cyborg then? Also, for people who haven't seen the art, the art for the game is very pretty. It's got a very nice art. The last game on the main list is one that I want to talk about because, as you may have heard me talk about on this podcast before, I'm a little bit obsessed with it. Frank talked about how it's hard to get a social deduction game that only works with like three or four players. This one only works with two. Until we have a solo social deduction game. (laughs) (laughs) You have to figure out who you are. No, this is uh, In Human Conditions, released in uh, 2019. The official boxed release isn't out yet, but it's coming real soon. Tommy Morangis and Corey O'Brien. And it is a two-player social deduction game. One player is the investigator. The other person is the suspect, who is either a human or a robot. Replicant. Sure. It is functionally (laughs) Voigtkampf test, the board game. And basically, the investigator is trying to figure out which one the person is. And they're given a topic of conversation. The robot has a specific set of conversational rules they need to follow. Like, they can only describe emotions they feel in terms of as a third person rather than using emotional words. Or they have to relate everything to something they personally did rather than anything they heard anyone else say. And the human doesn't have any topics, but they also don't know what they say that might sound like something the investigator thinks is a rule. There are little sort of penalties you can do if you break the rule. Like you have to say three words in a row that start with the same letter. So if you're the robot and you accidentally break your rule, you have to do that as a penalty. If you're a human, you do that accidentally. So there's a whole multiple level of things. And it's it seems like it's going to be fascinating. I'm not sure it's going to be good, but I think it's going to be really interesting. I want to watch someone play this. I don't think I want to play it. That's fair. So is the tutorial someone talking to you, you come across a turtle lying on its back <laughs> in the sun. What do you do? Yeah, I, I feel like that's something that's definitely going to be asked in some of the games. That sounds like something I might have to put on our Twitch stream. <laughs> and basically, it's like five minutes, and then the investigator makes a guess, and either they're right, and they win, or they're wrong, and they lose. Oh, I back this. Brian, I've got a question for you. Do you find this fascinating because you think it is fascinating, or have you simply been programmed to find it fascinating? I find it fascinating as a regular human who enjoys games of deduction socially. Oh, like good. normal humans do. <laughs> no, it sounds like an amazing social experiment. I'm really interested to see what it is. Does it come with a foam gun to shoot the robot if they reveal themselves? <laughs> no, I don't think. Although there are actually two types of robots. There are peaceful robots and violent robots. Peaceful robots just want to get in the investigation. The violent robot has like a list of three very specific things they have to do in the course of the interrogation. If they do two of those three... They can just stand up and say, bang. They have shot the investigator and they win. 
is is one of those things reveal that they were made by Waylon Yutani? I mean, maybe. Yeah. Who knows? Also, does the investigator find out that he is actually a robot at the end? Uh, that's in the expansion. Oh, good. <laughs> And then as far as honorable mentions or tangentially related things. Blood on the Clock Tower is one I'm interested in. I didn't back it, but it does look fascinating and bonkers. It consists of three giant scenarios, a very werewolf-like game, with some differences. There are 99 roles. Everyone gets a role in every game. The scenarios are supposed to be very different. The moderator gets this elaborate open book board where they can track people's roles and actions with all these felt back counters. But more importantly, when a character dies, they become a ghost that gets like one action and can vote on final outcomes. So everyone's always in the game. I mean, they're a limited role, but they're still involved. Sure. And I think some of the ghosts can just kill somebody like the hunter and werewolf. The reviews have been glowing, suspicious, <laughs> but apparently the game is really complex. There are elaborate sheets that explain all the roles. The handouts are nice. It's also a werewolf game that's like a hundred bucks. Yeah, mm. yeah, that was part of the controversy, how expensive it was. All the components in the box looks really nice. There's a lot of components, a ton of player aids and yeah. That is about everything for this episode. Tune in next month for our first anniversary episode. Very exciting. Mm. It's, I mean, it's probably not going to be anything special, but I mean, we're, we're hyping it up. Forcing Mike to play all the games he hates. Yep. Oh, as long yeah. as we also make Joe play all the games he hates. That's going to be a long episode, man. Yeah, Joe is. hates a lot of games. So anyway, thanks for listening. As always, we would love to get your feedback on Facebook or Twitter or an iTunes review would be great. It really does help. Mm -hmm. And in the meantime, don't forget to vote on our poll at AscentOfBoardGames.com to tell us what types of games you'd like us to talk about next. We do actually look at those. That's why we're here. That's uh, one of the reasons that led us to do this particular episode. So tell us what you like and tell us what you don't like. We'll ignore that part. Thanks again. And we will talk to you next month. Bye. 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 We hope you have enjoyed this episode of The Ascent of Board Games, which is protected by the Creative Commons license. Opening and closing music is Evening Melodrama by Kevin MacLeod via Incompetech.com. Full details can be found at AscentofBoardGames.com. Please share, like, subscribe, review, and comment on this podcast. And thank you for listening. We've gone to a silly place. Well, we're silly people, it happens.